Well, welcome to this uh, special edition. We are here with Colonel Stu Ferris, retired, and Lieutenant Colonel Jason Abbott, two legends in the soft community. We're excited here to talk about hand-to-hand -hand combat. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> We're good, Drew. Well, we're not sure we've reached that status yet, but uh, appreciate the sentiment. We're super grateful for both of you guys being here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about combatives, hand-to-hand -hand combat within the soft community. Excited to have both these individuals, our Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts, uh, incredible careers, and I want to just let themselves kind of open us up, talk a little bit about your background, if you will, and then how you started martial arts. What got you uh, beginning your journey? Yeah, Stu's pointing to me, so I'll probably uh, start that off. I'm retired, right? You guys are active duty <laughs> still. Um, no, nah, thanks for the intro. True. I think from a background, I mean, from the military side, I joined, <clears throat> excuse me, around 2002, joined the National Guard, 19th Special Forces Group, uh, finished up my degree, went active duty from there, 101st, beginning of the war. Um, it's kind of neat. It was in the 101st over there, 1st 502nd, South Baghdad, saw a bunch of SF guys running around over there, and I was like, you know what, I want to do that right there. Um, went into a Ranger Regiment after that, over at 3rd Battalion, down at Fort Benning, did my uh, rotations there. And then, uh, lucky enough, got fifth group. And then after that, you know, just SF ever since. Did my purgatory uh, here at Bragg. And uh, currently working up in uh, Virginia Defense Intelligence Agency. So that's kind of the Army background. Um, as far as jiu-jitsu background, I've been doing about, uh, adds up over time, right? Almost 30 years. Started out traditional martial arts, Korean, Japanese. Um, once we found a Brazilian to train with, late 90s, started training with... Uh, under Elio Seneca Moreira. Um, he's currently a sixth, almost seventh degree out of Brazil. And then um, trained him for a while. Uh, and then switched over to uh, Brian Marvin, Henzo Gracie, and been with those guys uh, you know, ever since. So it's been kind of a fun and wild ride. Okay, hey, yeah, real quick. Um, my name is Stu Ferris. I am a recently retired uh, SF Colonel. Uh, I was commissioned ROTC 1997. Time flies when you're having fun. First duty station was Fort Hood, Texas. I was an armor officer originally. I did three years at uh, First Cav. Went to SFAS in the fall of 2000, got selected. Came to Fort Bragg shortly after 9-11, and then I had just kind of a unique career, I guess, for what it's worth. I was very fortunate and able to stay most of my time here at Fort Bragg, uh, almost ever since after 9-11. So after going through the Q course, I went to 3rd Special Forces Group. Uh, spent a number of years over there as a detachment commander, company commander, uh, group operations officer. Did six deployments to Afghanistan while over there. And then I split uh, a, about half of my time as well over here at SWIC, at the Special Warfare Center School, which I enjoyed immensely. And command at the battalion level, at the first Special Warfare Training Group commander. And then I, I culminated as, as the chief of staff here uh, just about two years ago. So I've been retired now for about four months. Uh, life is good on the outside. Um, as far as martial arts go, and jiu-jitsu specifically, I first got introduced to it, I want to say it was early 2000, at the Captain's Career Course at Fort Benning. And they had just, I think, uh, you know, the Ranger Regiment, I think, had recently, within a few years prior, kind of stood up, you know, a combatives program there founded in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Um, in the Ranger Regiment, and that kind of migrated its way to Fort Benning. So at, at least once a week, we would train in the Captain's Career Course um, on just the very fundamentals of Jiu-Jitsu and got exposed to it there. Over time, when we came, when I PCS to Fort Bragg, going through the Q course at the time, we did combatives as well. It was a different program. It was called Lines. So some of the 
I hate to say old timers, but uh, went through that, and it was a good little hand to hand. But it was it was different. But that was what was the curriculum was at the time. And then, you know, my time in third group, there wasn't a codified combatives program at the time, so I delved in it a little bit, but never. We were busy and just it wasn't a priority at the time. So to be honest, you know, to fast forward, it wasn't until about 2012. Um, when a very good friend of mine named Jeff Teagues, some people out there may know Jeff, who's a retired uh, 05 super guy, but he was a blue bell at the time. And Jeff was like, hey, man, you really need to start training with me. And so uh, he's the one anyways who set the hook and we started training together. And it's been about 11 years now. You know what I mean? And once I started training with him, I never really looked back. And it's, it's a great thing. One of the only regret, it's not a regret necessarily, but you know, if I, if I have one thing, I wish I would have stuck with it sooner and, and started sooner. You know, but it's never too late. So, so hey, Stu, I got a question on that. So, we, we, a little bit of different backgrounds coming through the army between us both. Somehow, end up the same place. Awesome. Um, from a culture standpoint, being third group and you growing up and kind of getting into jiu-jitsu the way you did, how how did that culture impact you? And how was it, you know, coming into the lines and the MACP coming from that angle? And how, how have you seen that progressed um, from just a martial art? Warrior ethos, culture background, because I mean, you came at the beginning when like Matt Larson and Troy. And those that, guys that's right. Created that. And well, that's a whole different time. So, when I came in. So it was yeah, awesome. I don't. I remember Matt. He wouldn't. Matt Larson wouldn't know me from Adam. I was just a, another Q course. I mean, not Q course, a Captain's yeah. Career course student at the time. Matt Larson's a what, legend, by the way. That's yeah, when it was getting started. But it, it was literally the, the, the colonel, the brigade commander at Fort Benning at the time was a was an 06. I think he ended up becoming a three star general. His name was Mike Farrader. Farrader. He was also in the Ranger part, Regiment. Yeah. He was a, a three seven five commander. He ended up. Uh, uh, I think he was one of the DCGs for the 82nd. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he was he was big into Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and, and he was the guy who I think who really drove it home at the captain's career course at the time. And then Matt Larson, I want to say, might have been an E7 or something like that. Those guys wouldn't remember me from Adam. Again, I was just another face in the crowd, but that's where <laughs> I got my first exposure. So then I came to the, fast forward at PCS, here I started going through the Q course, and it was part of the Q course, the SF Q course curriculum at the time, but it was it was the Lions training, which was taught by... Ron Don Vito was Don his Vito, name, right? Yes, Don yeah. Vito and his son Mike actually had a curriculum. And for what it's worth, I thought it was pretty good. It was based on, and I'm going to butcher it all here, but it was a pretty simple system. And I think the thing that was good about it was it was simple, it was efficient, and it was one of those things like once you taught, once you learned the fundamental techniques and movements, it was something that you could. The idea was within about five minutes, you could just make it a habit and a routine. And if you got these movements down, you practice about five minutes a day, you could stay sharp in your toolkit, right? But I also thought it was important, like, it's in the song, right? If you listen to the ballad of the Green Berets, train to live off nature's land, okay, so your school, trained in combat, hand-to-hand. Like, I, th- I personally believe that hand-to-hand combatives, whatever form it is, that's an important part of a warrior's and or, you know, let's say, you know, a commando's toolkit has got to be hand-to-hand. It's in the song, so we should be doing something like that. And And over time, what I've seen is it's – Dependent on personalities uh, in various leadership positions, the emphasis on that kind of ebbs and flows for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's important to certain commanders; they want to put that in the pipeline or whatever. Other times, it comes in for a variety of reasons; um, it gets filtered out. Me, for what it's worth, I think it's important. Again, when I was in third group at the time, though, there wasn't uh, that much of a of a cultural emphasis on it. So, it, 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 oftentimes, it depended on like let's say the team sergeant of that team. If combatives was important to that team sergeant, that then that team tended to do combatives. But there was certainly not, at least in my time there, a either the battalion or the group level 
much of an emphasis. I do think that's changed, at least from what I've seen, because Third Group does now have a, as we know, has a pretty well established, oh, yeah. you know, combatives program in their advanced skills company, and we're friends with a lot of those guys. And there's, there's a great crew that that turns out there to train just about every day. So that's definitely a, th- a net positive, I think, that I've seen change. But um, this has kind of been my observation over time. No, that's a great rundown. I just want to ask you about the culture that you're coming from third group and stuff like that because like you said they have an amazing program over there now and i think you, know, you look back to like tim and andy that started it now you got jason so that's tim welcher tim, yeah, yeah and andy span those are some some guys who've been in third group for we'll know those names but yeah tim i think was one of the guys right who probably yeah. really stood the put an emphasis on combatives in their in their asc and that's carried on now through through andy and uh who's over this paul um jason paul and yeah. uh, brad or brad johnson are there yeah. so jason Remember the names <laughs> so throughout SWIC, we have people just starting their careers uh, going through the pipelines. We also have people who are very advanced who maybe in the twilight years of their careers. What do you guys think is important uh, of training at, at, at those different stages in your career? How have you seen training be important in your careers as you guys have developed and gone through? As far as training overall, uh, I'm going to gravitate towards the twilight of my career <laughs> in my late 40s and whatnot. But uh, I think guys nowadays are just so much smarter. Uh, they're so, they've got so many tools to their advantage now comparative to, like, when we when I came in and students, you know, older, the, the gray beards around here. I mean, it's still back in the old, like, 90s lifting modalities. You know, you just you just beat the muscle until it gets stronger, right? And, uh, you know, that, it worked for a while. Uh, same thing, same line on the combatives. You know, just just beat on each other and just get better. Uh, now we're all sitting in nur- nursing injuries later in life, right? Um, but when you start looking at these guys now, uh, just the modalities and methodologies they train with nowadays, uh, they grew up in that in that that type of fitness culture. And I, I think a lot of that goes towards like Thor. I think Thor is one of the greatest programs ever. Uh, devised for like that just that 10 level maintaining the weapon system and to me the weapon system I'll probably drive this home quite a bit when it comes to like combatives the weapon system is the person if that person's broke they, they, they can't fire a weapon they're not even able to get to the point to fire a weapon if they need them to right uh, so I think just from like the, the training aspects and everybody's getting smarter uh, rest is getting smarter rehab's getting uh, more you know invasive um, so I mean I just stuff like that I think just training's a lot more cerebral nowadays uh, the recuperations considered a lot more, and we're putting our uh, I think we're putting uh, our equities in the right places as far as taking care of the, the, the soldier system, the weapon system that we look at. So this is why I value training in uh, jujitsu specifically, because I mentioned earlier that if there's you know one thing if I, I wish I would have started and gotten bit by the bug so to speak earlier, because it I wasn't you know I, I wanted say I was like maybe 38 years old, right? I'm 49 now, I'll be 50 in October. Um, but 2012, when I really started in earnest, uh, I was already, again, 38 years old, you know? But here's, here's, so here's what I'd say. I mean, I already had some good life experience at this point, six combat deployments, this, that, and the thing. Once you start doing jujitsu specifically, I think there's, it becomes a metaphor for so many uh, lessons that you learn in life. You know, how to stay calm under pressure, how not to panic, how to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable, 
how to be in tough spots and how to problem solve and how to think your way out of it, right? And a lot of these things, you know, guys learn coming up through whatever they do in life, right? Um, but especially as a soldier, you know, and if you've been to, to combat, let's say, like everybody knows, um, the worst thing you can ever do is panic, you know? Um, but it's easily done, you know? When people are under stress, physical, mental, whatever it is, typically, right? People people tend to panic. And when people panic, they make bad decisions, right? And it kind of goes from there. And, and jujitsu just teaches you, especially when you first start out. Because I remember this, like, so just to tell my story, um, 2012, when I started kind of rolling in earnest with my good friend Jeff Teagues, and then Jeff left. He, he went to Israel on an assignment, so he was gone. So I had nobody. And right at that time, a guy named Colonel at the time, Scott Brower, who Jason knows where, who had just been the fifth group commander, and now he just come on board to be the chief of staff at USASOC. He shows up as the new chief of staff at USASOC, and, and I forgot how he and I got connected, but he was like, hey, I heard you roll. I'm looking for some guys to roll with because he was a big combatives guy over in fifth group. And what I found out quickly is fifth group had a pretty intense, at least under his tenure, grappling and combatives culture throughout the group. So he's like, hey, I'm looking for somebody to train with. And I said, okay, sure, but here's the thing. I, I'm basically a brand new white belt. <laughs> He was a brown belt already in a pretty seasoned one, you know, and uh, so he and I, you know, and so he was looking for someone to train with initially. So we would, we would go meet over at Bank Hall, right where we train right now, you know, down in the basement there. And then he brought in another guy who was from fifth group, who was a warrant officer at the time. And the warrant officer was named Eric Schwalm. Yeah. So Eric was also a brown belt. Now you got to imagine Colonel Brower at the time, you know, Probably my height, 5'9", but probably went a good 215, 220. You know what I mean? He's built like a Rottweiler. And uh, <laughs> Eric, not nearly as big, you know, maybe 160 pounds, my height as well, 5'9", but again, brown belt. So these two seasoned guys. And, and here, you know, Colonel Brower, God, you know, he would get on top of you and just, just put all his weight and pressure, and then he would just try to rip your arm off, you know, and... I can remember driving to work in the mornings, like knowing what was to train with them, knowing full well what was going to happen. And I would be thinking in my mind, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, this is, this sucks. Why am I putting myself, because there's nothing worse as you know, when you get a person who's heavy and they put their weight on your chest and, and it's hard to breathe and all these things and they're trying to rip your arm off. Uh, it is extremely uncomfortable and it's unpleasant and you have two choices to make, right? You can either panic and spaz out and that usually ends well, or you can learn how to relax, to kind of take a breath if you can, to start to make these little movements, to make adjustments, and then to find your way out of the problem. And so the one thing I'll say that that taught me early on was how to survive being in bad positions and you know being uncomfortable. Um, but again, that's a, that's a metaphor for life, right? We're all gonna find ourselves in bad positions at times when we feel a lot of pressure from various external forces, influences, whatever it could be. It could be physical, it could be, it could be mental, it could be spiritual, social, whatever it is. Um, Jiu-jitsu, just through the practice of it over time, it really teaches you how to deal with those pressures, whatever they are, and how to do it with calmness and with efficiency and with patience and all these other things that we learn through the practice of jujitsu that transfer directly to what we do in life. Now, you, you mentioned two people that are uh, very dear to my heart from fifth group, uh, Schwami and uh, General Brower. Uh, speaking of culture, I mean, that guy, General Brower, he's one, yeah. one of the best leaders I've had in the Army. <clears throat> Excuse me, and two, uh, he was a demon on the mats. Uh, 
It just he, he ripped your arm off. His, his, his go-to move was a Camaro. Well, can I say this yeah. real quick? So here's what it was like. When I first started out down there especially, there was – and we'll, we'll get to this part later, how things have evolved over time. Because I've had the luxury at least of seeing kind of like what happens down in Bank Hall over the past 11 years more or less. And it's just – it's it's oh, it's been a steady upward uh, incline, which is great. And Jason's had the biggest impact on that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, I think. We'll Thank get you. to it. But – Early on, at least when I started down there, I'll say this, there was there was really no instruction, so to speak. So, it, it, I mean, the environment was this. I would show up. Oh, I got to mention another name, who is uh, Mike Bowman. Oh, wow. Okay, so Mike Bowman yep. was uh, another fifth group guy who, imagine, he, Mike must have been 6'4", maybe 6'5", 260 pounds, just a monster of a man. Blue belt, but again, just, they were beasts, you know. And so we would show up in there. And it was basically this, okay, let's put six minutes on the clock, touch hands, go. And it was just, it was a death match, basically. Full tilt. Yeah, full on, you know what I mean? It was almost like a UFC match without being able to hit each other. So I say this, for a new guy coming in, there wasn't much instruction that was going on. It was just me in survival mode. But if I got nothing else out of it, what that taught me was for that about year and a half or so that I trained with them, um, was just learning how to survive, you know, in, in bad situations. That's, so. what, that's what it's like, Roman Brower. Yeah. Um, but the culture, he started at fifth group. And, um, you know, I, you know, when, you know, obviously came fifth group, folks on that, but I think every group has its own um, flavor of this. Uh, every Thursday was fight day for a while when I was a team leader there. And, uh, I mean, we had Andy Marshall and those guys, the horse soldiers, they were still around, and they, they would come out and fight in the, in the quad, the grass area over there. But when it came to the mat room, Brower expected his officers and his senior NCOs to be down there. Not not just to fight each other, but just to lead from the front. If the guys see you out there, it creates a culture. And every time Brower was there, you'd see staff guys. You'd see, I mean, they're, they're all in there. You'd have 70 people on the mats. It was, it was, it was, it was like control chaos. Because it wasn't wild time. I mean, it was proctored very well, the training there, because we had a pretty robust combatives program. But you just noticed that the culture and group Everybody could talk to each other. Everybody, everybody was open. Everybody was just engaged because you can't hide. You can't hide on the mat. You cannot hide on the mat. It's gonna. You're gonna. You have to engage that person. Uh, you said good, bad, or ugly. You, you know that's that's. You know how intimate it gets on that mat. You know. You know about that person. You know his name. You know what he's good at what he's bad at. But it was just such a great culture, and I think that carried on at fifth group because at some point I remember when I was leaving there because I was over at fourth battalion the RSC commander. And we had a. Um, pretty big uh, combatives thing going on there. Just between the transients, individuals from 101st, 160th, everybody came, like, came to that gym as the kind of a cent- central point for combatives on Fort Campbell. On any given moment, we had somewhere between uh, maybe 7 to 11 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts every morning there. And I can't really honestly think of another place in the Army, let alone in the civilian sector, where that happens that consistently, that, aw- that, that often. And... Uh, you know, just it, it, it worked its way into Safawak, into the ASC and stuff like that. Like it just it was a it was a warrior culture, and uh, I, honestly, I just because you mentioned his name uh, Brower, I think he kind of ignited that. I mean, it, that warrior culture's always been there, but it takes the right leader at the right time, the right place to make that happen. I think Scott Brower was that. Yeah. And then you got a guy like Schwami, man. He's he's like a mad scientist. He's just he's, you can tell he's always thinking. But we had a good group then. 
And uh, I was very fortunate to be a part of that time period uh, coming through that, my formative years in SF as a captain. I wasn't that young of a captain. But and I think that culture <laughs> yeah. is stuck there, right? Because my understanding pretty is much. there still is a pretty robust, you know, kind of combatives uh, program, right, that's yeah. at the group level, at least at Fort Campbell and Fifth Group. I think I'm most of soft, and I've been around a lot of different soft elements. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I'm kind of partial to Fifth Group. they got Ray Casillas there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got a lot of people there that are just phenomenal, and they've got legacy there. So they've got repetitions. They understand the they understand the organization, you know, the train it takes to be there, because they're they've been there for so long. And then um, you know, I look at that program. I look at what like third groups built with Jason, Paul, and uh, Brad over there. What they built. Um, yeah, I mean some of these programs starting to get some legs under them, and they're starting to get longevity in the guys. And you know, jujitsu is one of the hardest martial arts to make rank in. I mean, it takes, you know, arguably, up 10 years to get your black belt. Fact. Uh, that's, that's outside of NCOPD and officer development and PCS cycles, it's really hard to get somebody that long to get to that level of training, that much ligature and capability in one organization to stick around and actually create that type of impact, right? But it's starting to happen. And you're starting to see these guys that are, you know, sticking around long enough to actually give back to, you know, give back to the groups, the regiment, yeah. and, and the people, the, the new generation coming in. I think it's it's, it's awesome period of time, like just now. Just yeah. The dividends pay off the turn on investment from some guys like Brower and those guys who started that off. Yep. So we touched a little bit on the personal resiliency and also the community that gets built through uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So on that note, real quick, just again, and that's what Jason, like relationships, right? Because all these guys we talk about, like everyone keeps in touch with each other now. You know what I mean? Via various means, even they're in different places now and locations. We guys check in with each other. You know what I mean? Hey, how are you doing? You know, I think Schwami's opened up his own uh, academy now or, stu- you know, gym. Kaze it, or yeah, in, uh, yeah, outside of Fort Campbell. But um, yeah, it, it, it really, you form kind of a community, right? That you keep in touch with and you're a, you're a part of, even after you get out of the military. You know what I mean? That's always there, so. Sorry. So what's available for students going through SWIC right now, one of the three pipelines? What what uh, training opportunities are they having at, at this time? Can I say something? Send it. Yeah, so let me let me talk if I can, just a little, a brief hit. And this is just my own personal experience, again, of training over in, in Bank Hall, okay, across the street from where we're at right now. Um, I started training there in 2012 and and before that even though there was a time you know when SWIC really had a very very well established combatives program and I want to say and someone can probably fact check me on Google after this or whatever but uh, back when the army was big on the army combatives tournaments mm-hmm. and whatnot like SWIC would in, in the in the early two I want to say it's circa 2006 7 8 time frame SWIC would go down there and win that thing really? and, yo were you guys like Tim Kennedy were, was oh, wow. part of the yeah. team. And it makes it was, a difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Though they had some other guys, too. John Long, look him up. Yeah. You know, another fifth group guy. He's, you know, um, some monsters. And they would go down there and clear, and ha- clear house. But and but they, they trained. They, I mean, they had a very, um, it was well-supported, well-resourced. And that's why you go to, if you go down there now, you'll see pictures of, like, guys like Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, right? And I think there were some... I don't know who they were, unfortunately. Some of the, the senior NCOs that ran the NCOA at the time were very passionate about it, and they would bring some of these high-level, you know, the best of the best in the UFC to do little seminars and things like that. And so there was a there was a, a really good, prominent kind of program that was going on. And for whatever reason, that fizzled out over time. When I came in, in 2012, when I started rolling, it was it – was, there was, again, a, you know, Jeff Teague's got me into it, and then we were actually looking for a place. We would go roll over at Ritzep's gym, believe it or not. We'd, we'd 
pull some wrestling mats out. And we jump all over each other. And again, Jeff was a blue belt at the time. I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then we're like, you know what? Well, we can find a place that has some actual jujitsu mats. And so we found Bank Hall. So we started going down there. And there was another small group of guys. Like there was a guy named Derek Davis that would train down there who, was, who worked over in the NCOA. So we kind of got into that group. So there was, a, there was a core of like three or four of us that would get together to train. Um, and then Brower showed up, you know what I mean? And it kind of went from there. So there was always this nucleus of, of, of guys that just trained um, just because we enjoyed it. But there wasn't a lot of structure either, right? And then you would see like students in the qualification course or whatever, or even cadre would, would kind of poke their head in and be like, oh, you guys roll. Like, well, I, can I join you guys? Sure, no problem. So what I, what I kind of saw happen over the years was things down there like ebbed and flowed. At some points, you know, one time we'd have students that would come through that were really, we, we had a black belt. I'll tell you, there was a guy, I'll say, you know, his name was Clint Carroll. Clint was a, was a, was a Carlos Machado black belt uh, who was going through the Q course at the time as an 18 Delta. And this was around 2015 to about 2017 timeframe. And, so, and he, was a, he was a regular down there. And, and at the time he was able to give some really, really high level instruction. Um, and we were all very grateful for that. But then, of course, he graduated the Q course and was gone. And so then it went back down to just the rest of us, you know. But what, I, what I've seen happen over time is just by having a group of people down there that train regularly and routinely in the mornings, and then when they started moving some of the Thor gym equipment in there, what I saw happen was the mat space got less. Smaller and smaller. It got smaller and smaller, right? <laughs> and so there was some downside to that, that we lost some mat space. But I'll say this, and, and they moved in some of the Thor gym equipment. But here was the upside to that. Now you had more cadre and cute qualification course students that were coming in to see that to use that equipment, and then they saw us rolling, which they wouldn't have otherwise, which then piqued their interest. And then as we see now, they would come and ask, like, hey, and then this is the question they always want to know is like, well, how much does it cost? You know, all this stuff. No, it doesn't cost anything. It's free. Just come train, right? And then, you know, what I saw happen, this is where Jason comes in. So it's always ebbed and flowed over time in terms of there was times when it was only three or four of us down there, just enough people to keep the flame lit, so to speak. And then there'd be surge periods where you'd be having, you know, 20 to 30 people on the mats. And that's where I'd say where we kind of are now, believe it or not, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll say this, you know, what I've seen, who made the difference um, down there is Jason. Um, when Jason came on board, and I got introduced to Jason by, I was the training group commander at the time, and Bill Bradley, that was, uh, who's now Lieutenant Colonel, but he was a, he was the XO down in 4th Battalion at the time. Because again, we, I had just gotten back from the War College, I wanted to get things back up and rolling down there, so we had this core group of guys that were interested in, and we enjoyed doing jujitsu, but we didn't really have any adult supervision, so to speak. And, uh, <laughs> which is, which can be dangerous. And Bill was like, hey, he's like, I, I know a guy, his name's Jason Abbott, he goes, I think he'd be great. If, if you could, and he's a black belt, you know, under Brian Marvin and, and, and Henzo Gracie. And I said, say no more, get him down here. And I want to say like the next week, Jason showed up and uh, that was in 2019. And ever since then, that's four years going now, but that's what's really him showing up down there has what has professionalized um, the training that takes place down in Bank Hall now every, you know, every, and we train five days a week down there now, Monday to Friday, 6.30 to about eight o'clock, you know, and it's in, Drew, as you know, you know, you, you've showed up and, and see what it's all about, but it's, it's, I think we've got a great environment down there. 
Um, you know, I know diversity is a big thing these days. Right? And you talk about a diverse crowd, though, right? We've got people from all three regiments. We've got males. We've got females. Some guys bring their kids in. Spouses come in, right? It's everybody, you know. And and the thing that bonds us all, I think, is just like you know, we we, we enjoy training and and everything that comes with that. Just you know, the social aspects, the physical aspects, getting to know each other, and that that transcends and in, in beyond just the mats, right? But we're, it, there's friendships that develop in relationships, you know, in, in very positive ways beyond the mats. But um, I've really seen, I've had the luxury, I guess, of seeing how things have evolved down there literally over the past uh, 11 years. But if there's one person that's made a huge difference in the training that goes on down there, it's, it's this guy sitting here to my left, Jason Abbott. Absolutely. Kind of speechless thing. I really don't know what to say after that. Um, appreciate that. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like kind of wondering, you know, I never try to be the best guy, I just try to be the right guy, you know. And sometimes by the virtue of that, you know, you end up where you end up. Um, I think one of the things you talk about, wow, really, thank you. Um, it's like the community and, and, and the relationships. I think I'm going on, coming up on 22 years, if I do math right, in the military. And man, I have just way, way more awesome career than I, I could imagine when I started this journey. Looking back, the times, the people, and stuff like that, great relationships. But when I really look back at it, like I, I still keep in touch with the first people I trained with in martial arts. and it creates such a community it creates such a camaraderie right yeah. Aaron Stevens Rob King William Schneider those guys when I first started and you know moving along and more into I think you're probably touching on this here in a little bit Drew as far as you know like what it does for you as a person and like coping and helping you know, fire you know stress under fire for lack of a term that you had touched on too um I, I can I can sit here and, you know this, both you know this I can sit here and tell stories all day long but you know like one of the the my favorite, and uh, I don't think about it often, it just kind of jogged my memories listening to you talk. Um, when I went in the 101st, it was the first five or second, the Blackhearts on, on uh, uh, their uh, the year-long trip over there. And it was the it was the Blackheart trip, actually a book written about it. It's not the greatest of books. But, um, you know, at that time, I'd probably been training, when was that, 2005? I'd probably been training probably about Eh, off and on martial arts 10 years whatever jiu-jitsu only for you know maybe six seven and uh you know we get over there and we're just <laughs> getting it's just it's wild wild west at that point you know uh, every day something's happening you know we our battalion lost 24 guys that year and uh it's just every day was chaos right and uh you know we didn't have t-walls up back then old iraq you had the goat fence up you're intense you're, you're wearing your battle rattle your ibas back then to go to, go to the restroom even you know what, what what is your stress relief other than waiting on the next patrol order to come out and go out and do it again it, you know it's that's not the best stress relief so we had a gym okay cool we can go down and lift the weights well that's not for everybody too Anyway, so just, I remember I, I would sit at my little computer in the old burned out, bombed out chicken factory. I was watching like old UFC films, stuff like that. So some of my squad leaders come in there, we watching. So we, I'd push the computer back on our little makeshift like table and we sit there and watch like old UFC fights, da 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 da. Talking, talking, talking. It's like, oh wow, you, you do martial arts, sir? I was like, yeah, I do it, man. Man, we do that. So we actually found a little place over in like this old warehouse that was on our fob. It was just dirt floor and we started rolling. Man, that was brutal. It was like five of us, me and my squad leaders, a couple guys from over at HHC, first five second. And it's like, man, this, this is pretty brutal. <laughs> these uh, these uh, rough floors here. So we went and got two by fours and then got a bunch of blankets and a staple gun. 
and we just put five blankets and just you know staple them down and put those together and we create our mats out of that you know and i can't even begin to tell you just like like how awesome that was you know, not just for me for i mean for that little group there that our time off like stuff sitting in the in, in the tents you know playing video games whatever or just whatever you know go out there and actually start working you know we just, we just start workshopping i wasn't really teaching just start workshopping really beating the crap out of each other because way back when right but it was just so fun we had a we had a we had a goal every day obviously our mission first whatever but we had a goal every day we come back we go eat knock knock the sweat off go in there hang out and just kind of like the world outside didn't matter for a second and honestly, yeah. man, that, that was a mental place that I know I could rely on every day to go to. And I just remember back then, you know, down in Lutafia and a couple places, if you know the Fias down south of Baghdad, you know, kind of got out a little bit. And he was a great guy, Michael Amkins. He was the platoon sergeant from the mortars at HHC. He's like, hey, I heard you do some bass. Like a little challenge happening. You know, come up there and fight a little bit and train a little bit. Next thing you know, guys would come up from different uh, outstations and MSS and they get some rolls on. And I just know for me and a few other people that was that was that was like one of those things where you just thank God that was there, man, because like it, the stress was pretty palpable. Yeah, large that time. you just reminded me of something if I could too, real quick, Jason. Is another lesson, right? Is there's a lot of talk these days, you know, from health and wellness standpoints of the importance of mindfulness. You know what I mean? And staying in the present moment and not worrying about the future <laughs> and right these things that cause anxieties that we don't even know what's going to happen or not, right? But we do it to ourselves. And I learned this early on in jujitsu was it forces you to stay present and in the moment when you're training, and especially when you're kind of grappling or rolling with someone else. Because I found out this. When I'd be training with someone and we're sparring, let's say, if I was in the moment, if I lost my – if I was no longer present – if I was allowing, I would start to, oh man, I got this big presentation or a briefing I got to give later on today. If my mind would switch to that in the moment and yeah. I would start thinking outside of the present, inevitably I would make a mistake. I would find myself getting submitted or swept or something. You know what I mean? Because I lost, I lost focus on the present, right? Because I was allowing my mind to think about the future and worry about something. And it was this great vehicle, right? For like, it's that's just another one of those lessons that it teaches you. You know what I mean? For your mind, how to stay in the present moment. Absolutely. Just to dogpile that comment, since we're here, right? Um, that's where we, ha- we hold each other accountable too. Yeah. Like, so I know it's hard. To, you know, when you hit those mats, you got two suitcases: ego, set yep. it on one side, yep. on the other side, like just whatever else is out there. Just set that down too. Your ego and the rest of the clutter of your mind gets set at the end of the mats. Knock your shoes off, hop on. Let's 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 train. Uh, you all have checked me. I'm pretty sure I've checked you all, and we, it's just what we do. And uh, you know that's where the the buddy system really comes in there, man. Mindfulness, and then you know what you can't lie to each other. Yep. You know what's going on. Yep. And I know when somebody's drifting. Yep. I know you guys probably know when I'm drifting. It's just part of it, man. It has no rank to it. It's just the bro. It's 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 the brotherhood of and sisterhood of being down there, right, man. And that's that's where you come to, man. That mindfulness, man. I, I know when you're, I, I know we're wrong with either one of you two. The mindfulness of you two, right? It's my kind of my jaws the black. But know that, but at the same time, like you just know that, man. Because like, hey, man, something's not right. Or hey, man, this guy's on. Or I'm watching you guys teach or something like that. It's like, Damn, man, he's, he's teaching stuff I I forgot about. You know, sometimes I have to think like that. You know, it's like I know the mindfulness and where it's at. But it's also an accountability system we have with each other. To know, like, when that dude's out there, oh, yeah. hey, this guy needs this role right now. Yeah. This guy needs, like, 
this this guy needs to be crushed maybe i don't know you know <laughs> or this guy needs like this guy needs some wins this well, guy needs some short wins yeah well some guys you know, some guys need their too, ego you know? checked every now and then right, you know yeah. what i mean like you start that's another yeah. thing that's a great a spectrum thing. You know? the great thing about it, but it's also it will keep it's a it's another vehicle to keep you humble right like that's to right. keep you humble it learns to keep your ego in check and all these things right and that's yeah. the thing if your ego starts to get too big guess what there's going to be somebody out there that's going to help help deal with that for you then if, yeah. if, if that's what you need you know well, browerism man humility is within arm's reach yeah anytime you need yeah, it that's, it's going to reach out and grab that's you bro, the key you know? it's to keep yeah that's exactly <laughs> right so it becomes a great uh, reminder right of this of humility and constant learning but one other story i'll tell on that real quick Jason about um, again these are like like bank hall mat stories stuff that really happened this is probably seven years ago it was one of the OGs I won't mention his name just out of privacy he won't might not appreciate it but but it's um, it was just he and I down there one morning just he and I and so we're training together and we're rolling and I could tell something was off with him I could tell I was like hey I was like we kind of stopped at one point I'm like are you okay and as soon as I said that and this is a senior NCO Green Beret. He breaks down crying. He just broke down crying on the spot. I'm like, dude, what is wrong? You all right? I guess he and his wife had been going through some marital problems. And it had finally hit that point, you know what I mean, where she was leaving, you know. And I think she was kind of, for what it's worth, having a midlife crisis, one of those type of things. But in, um, And he was having a really hard time dealing with that. And he, had, you know, and he was moving out or whatever. And um, they had been married for, I think, you know, had two or three kids, probably fifteen years. He was just starting to process all that. And um, I mean, what do you do in that moment? You know what I mean? You stop. You give a guy a hug, and then you talk it out and everything. Um, long story short, I think he's remarried these days. He's doing great. He's doing great. Um, but in that moment, you know what I mean? That's provided an opportunity, right? For a guy to get, you know, and to, to talk and to share and to be vulnerable, right? And to let all that out. And that, But those kind of things like actually happen on the mats and especially when you train with people routinely because you, you do become so closely just by the nature of what it is, right? You know what I mean? When you're, when you're, when you're entangled with people and stuff like that, you develop these very close friendships and bonds and then people are, are, are more, much more willing to open up and be vulnerable. And that, be, that's a, that's a very, that can become a very, very, very powerful thing to help others with. Absolutely. Go ahead, Drew. Okay. I, I just think this conversation is so important because people sometimes look at training from the outside and they just like, oh, it's just, you know, people trying to be macho or this or that. And there's so many other benefits, especially like for me as a chaplain, <laughs> they're the, making those interpersonal connections with people and having those opportunities to be there for them. And a lot of times that doesn't happen just through talk. There's a lot of great things that can happen in a counseling or a therapist's office, but a lot of times people need to have a connection first yep. before they feel that that ability to be vulnerable and open up. And there's a level of trust, right? Because you, you tr there's a level of trust that's been built now with this person. Absolutely. So you got to think every time you're on the mats with somebody, uh, is, I, I, again, doing a lot of different martial arts. I just, I'm you know, really focused on the jiu-jitsu aspect of this. And you're, 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 not to overstate it or to understate it, you're putting your life in that person's hands sometimes. You got to think when you tap, what you're actually confessing to, yeah. uh, or admitting to, you just broke my arm, right. or you just about did. You were that close. That's how that's how good your technique was today. You you just about broke my arm, or you just about choked me or broke my neck. Like if you really think about what a tap actually is, 
it is a it, it is a contract between two people there it's like that's where the ego just kind of melts away some a lot of people you have to you let it have to acknowledge it right yeah. like that's the, that's like the way of congratulating the other person like that's one of the hardest things to learn in my opinion when you've and i'll say this like if i could go back and do it over again i, I should have checked my ego at the door about eight years ago you know because my shoulders would thank me a lot more because i was one of those <laughs> stubborn people right like when when then colonel brower had me in a kimura or something like that when i should have tapped i didn't because of my ego and was I able to fight my way out of it? Sometimes I was, but I tell you what, the wear and tear that that put on me over time, I, I wish I could go back and do that again, you know, over again, I should say. So I think a lot of times what happens is people confuse training on the mats with winning. You know what I mean? And they, they, they want to they wanna win when they roll. And that's, that's not what it's about at all. When you're training on there, it's about learning and having fun. You know, save the, the the winning mindset, in my opinion, for the competition. When you go to a competition, okay, now now you're there to win. That's 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 the goal, right? Um, but when we're training amongst each other, learn, have fun. You know, and the best way to learn, put yourself in really bad positions. Absolutely. <laughs> and guess what? When you put yourself in really bad positions, every now and then you're going to get tapped out because it gets too far. Now you're, and that's, but that's how you learn, you know, but it's all about sub learning how to subordinate your ego. It's easier said than done. But that's why I also think a lot of people are reluctant to even want to start because they're too worried about the ego element that's involved. And if they could just uh, learn, and that's why I want to, you know, I'd like to make an open invitation to anyone who listens to this that's oh, in Swick or on Fort Bragg you know, the door is wide open to anyone. People always ask like, well, who can come train there? And it's like, and again, we have, we have soldiers from the 82nd that come and train too, right? Like 6.30 in the morning, bank hall, Monday to Friday, show up and look, all we guarantee is like the rules are, you know, number one, nobody gets hurt, you know, and everybody's gonna have fun and learn something. That's, those are the main goals, that's it, you know, and it's just a good community, so. I think that's a good segue into maybe the elephant in the room when we start talking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or combatives in the Army. Uh, the thing that always comes up is risk, injuries. People are worried about yep. getting hurt. Uh, you have guys that are older who have pre-existing injuries or just they're aging. They think they're too old to start this journey. Um, commands are always wor worried about those sort of things. So what do you guys say to safety and that risk that people are always concerned with? Hear that a lot. And the, you know, I think the concern's real. We don't want to hurt, especially at Swick. We got a lot of initial entry, special operations soldiers coming in. So the risk is warranted. But um, having said that, it, there's a lot of factors involved in that. So, you know, we are, it is, a, it is, you are in the art of fighting. So having said that, you know, if you look at like the most injury inducing things across the army, I'm not a statistics guy, but uh, you know, statistically speaking, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, you look at things across the army, we've all seen this. Most, a lot of people get hurt by running. Let's just be honest. I don't mind me out running, trail running, right? Uh, ultimate uh, frisbee or football, basketball. There's a lot of things out there that create a lot of injuries, right? Um, I've honestly, I'm going to knock on wood just real quick. <laughs> I've seen so far fewer injuries in combatives that is proctored the right way. I'm going to caveat with that statement. Now, if you put a bunch of meatheads out there, they're just going to continue to beat on each other like we used to back in the old days. And I think a lot of the, the mentality goes back to how it used to be. Um, people think about their experience, and their experience back then was like, I just walked in the room, got the crap beat out of me, and then that's all I remember. I just remember my neck was hurting for like two, two weeks afterwards, right? 
the game's changed a lot since then. The training's changed a lot since then. Back to our original statement, you know, what's different training now than it was back then? We are so much smarter about how we do things, right? And so when I look at it, if it's proctored right, and you have the right people there, like you're not going to see that as much, if at all. You know, the way I break it down, and you all heard me say this ad nauseum in class, you know, we, we get an hour and a half to train. All right, first, first things first, we're gonna work on stand-up. There's a reason you got on the ground. Or there's a reason you want to not want to get on the ground, who knows, but so a stand-up. And then you go into the ground game. Well, it, it'd be different. I'd be a horrible instructor if I stood y'all out there and just, everybody just beat on each other, figure it out, right? No, I'm not gonna do that. So let's, 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 back, let's back the throttle off to about 20% and let's, 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 let's kind of like, you know, surgically take apart this technique and let's, let's figure out what works. And then we'll start repacking that to make it work for everybody. And then when you think about what, what you just did, you did a lot of training just in that alone. All right, cool. Now that you all have worked through it, all that, you know, intricacies of this technique, let's drill it. Let's drill it. Let's drill it in a semi-live environment. All right. While you're all drilling it, uh, me and Stu as black belts, you do too, Drew, walk around. Now let's, let's, go, let's, let's go around and make the, 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 the lower belts and the, the other people that aren't as experienced as us, let's make sure they're doing it right. Let's walk around, not, not move your hand over here, not put your foot, whatever. Cool, now let's go to open rolls. All right, stop, we're not beating each other up yet. Why don't we work on the things we worked on in class to make sure we can do it at the speed of war? Now, if you add that up, that's over an hour's worth of instruction there. All right, so from, from a responsible, responsible and accountable person here, because I am as a black belt, like I'm, I'm responsible for things on the mat and I'm accountable for things. If I teach you a crappy technique and you go out there and it doesn't work in Iraq, Syria, or even the streets of Raleigh, whatever, if I taught you a bad technique and you use that, I'm accountable. That's the way I kind of look at that, right? So I'm not gonna, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna teach you the right things, at least I think are the right things, right? But from a safety standpoint, you know, on those mats, we just mitigate a lot just by having control of the group, teaching the right way, and everybody walks away with a great experience and they come back. And so now when you have the guys, Stu was talking about off the mats, the foot traffic, that's our recruiting program right now and it works great. They're looking over there and they're like, I heard, I, I, I hear it, I don't know if you hear it, but like, hey, can we join over there? Yeah, that's it. That's, that, that's like a full blown class. You're like what you're actually teaching that you're watching black belts and brown belts walking around. You usually don't see that in a combatives facility. Um, and you guys are actually like teaching stuff like this is legit. You know, we hear that and that's not on me. That's on everybody here. That's on you guys. I mean, it takes all of us to do that. Right. So now we got people wanting to come in because they, I'm in the Q course, right? I remember when I did the Q course, man. I had a just got back from the point with the Q, Q course. My shoulder was shot. I was scared. I thought I was blade running the whole time. I was scared to death. I was going to get hurt. But now we got guys wanting to come over there. They're, they're willing to join in there and train us while they're in the Q course because they know it's a safe environment to come learn, yep. train, a technical skill, and you show up to your team with a warrior skill as a new guy. And that is money, if you ask me. Now, and I just went on a rant here. Thanks, Drew, for setting that up. But, Stu, if you want to add that, please. No, that's great. And from a safety standpoint, I'll, I'll say this. Put some things in perspective, maybe. I may get in some trouble, but I'm going to cite um, – <laughs> Mark Asanovich, who I believe was a head, you know, he was a strength and conditioning coach in the NFL for about 14 years, I think for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for the Minnesota Vikings, you know, quoting and citing him, what, what are the two most injury-producing athletic sports activities um, statistically? I believe number one is uh, Olympic lifting. Number two is powerlifting. 
look at the Thor programs that we're using right now, <laughs> right? A lot of that is Olympic lifting and powerlifting based, right? So now I'll say this, like anything though, if you, if you train it smartly in a controlled manner under the proper protocols, it's safe. Like almost everything we do is oftentimes safe, right? What gets you, what gets you hurt in those endeavors oftentimes is what? Your ego. ego. You're trying to do too much weight, you use bad form, boom. Next thing you know, you just hurt your back. You just hurt your shoulder. You just tore a pec or whatever, you know? It's, it's no different in jujitsu, right? It's, it's extremely safe. You know, it, it's, the great thing about jujitsu is you can train it almost every single day. No one's, there's no, it's not like boxing where you're getting hit in the head and you gotta worry about now things like we know, like, you know, TBI and CTEs and these things. You can train it every single day in a very safe, very controlled manner, right? But, and the key is this, right? Number one, it's like having, having the right culture and environment of where you train, of that mindset that everyone's going to be safe and controlled, you know, and then enforcing that. Because what's, what's every higher level belt's biggest fear of rolling with someone on the mats? Who, who's, who, you know, who are they afraid of? It's the new white belt that's white coming belts. in, right? right? And especially it's the white belt that comes in, you know, who weighs about 220 and is, you know, is doing all that Thor 3 powerlifting stuff, right? Because that guy's going to come in and just be like a Tasmanian devil and try to use all this muscle and might and brute force and they're usually out of control and next thing you know you're catching an elbow in the teeth or because they don't know what they're doing and you got to be like hey man just chill for a second let me show you a few things right so i would say this it's training martial arts jujitsu specifically i would say is extremely safe if you have the right people you have the right culture the right protocols and again and, and then going back to that mindset of hey when you get caught tap you always have and it's fine again and if you look at the highest level competitors they even say guys like gordon ryan for people who are familiar with him you know he taps in training pretty frequently because he puts himself in really really bad positions when he's training he lets things get too far and when they do guess what he taps now does he get tapped in competitions absolutely not <laughs> right because those are two different environments but we got to remember we're here to train and to learn if you're on the streets, if you get an encounter or maybe downrange somewhere to get an encounter, well, that context changes and you're going to escalate things accordingly, you know. But it's, I think the safety, it shouldn't be that much of a concern in my opinion. We, if you've got the right people and the right culture and the right mindset, you know. And I think the evolution, we, we've hit that on this before, just over time, it went from the old crazy days to now you got really technical people. Yes. That they're, we've got some legs under us and there's, there's longevity to people now. Yeah. In the institutions we have now, yep. it's soft where, well, you got a guy stuck around for 10 years, he's a black belt now, we well, need to use this guy. Before. And I'll say this, I think also <clears> think <throat> done correctly is, is, a, is a activity, an art, an endeavor that you can do for your, the rest of your life, right? Till the oldest, you know, however long you live, more or less, if you if you practice it properly. Now, is your physicality going to decline? Of course it is. Are you you know Are you going to be able to maintain your strength, your athleticism? You're absolutely not. I'm living, you know, and I've had to accept that, right? But the thing is this: as those things decline with age, which they inevitably inevitably will, the one thing that won't go away that you can actually improve is technique. Mm -hmm. Right. And so by focusing on technique over time, you can help make up for the loss of athleticism, strength, power, all these things that that decline with age. And when you get to our age, you know what I mean? We, we start to look back wistfully and like, oh, man, it is what it is. But you adapt. Right. But it's it's one of those, uh, again, jujitsu is one of those 
lifetime practices you can make it if you if you practice it accordingly i just think how blessed we are on that too we have our my thor trainer adam davis yeah. awesome by the way yep. people out there listening yep. thor swick he's one of our purple belts yep uh soon probably let the cat out of the bag soon be promoted maybe i don't know um so i mean i have a trainer who's not only knows the sport but who's been doing it for quite a while but who knows look at me and go hey we need to work on something with you know his injuries and stuff like that too and then my uh physical therapist at thor too christine I forgot her last name i'm so sorry but uh she trains up or used to train up in uh Fuquay, apex area and like so I, as soon as i walk in there i mean she's almost telling me how I, I probably pulled my groin or something like that because she knows how i did it because she understands the science and the, the kinesiology and the, uh, the, the physicality of jiu-jitsu yeah and that's you know it's kind of evolution of, evolution of the species here and soft you know like we're just getting to the point now where people are starting to understand this more and more so so Suppose someone can't train at SWIC, they're in a group somewhere uh, disconnected from Fort Bragg. What, what things should people be looking for in a training environment? What are like the, some of the key things that they want to hone in on? I think we've hit a lot of those. Um, but as you're, as you're going out, if you're talking about going out in the civilian world uh, around a base, that's um, always the culture. The culture is going to, and it'll pop up immediately when you go in there. You know, I don't want to talk bad about any other organizations or any other schools, but if you go in there and the first thing you realize is as soon as I step on the mat, regardless of your experience, regardless of your, I don't care what belt rank you are, you walk on those mats and you, you, you soon soon realize that you're cannon fodder or that you're a training dummy, for lack of a better term, for their competition guys, just go ahead and just just walk out. That's my opinion. Now, if that's the type of person you are, you want to go in there and bang, that, by all means, go ahead. But if you're going in there to learn and safely learn and kind of polish your skills or learn new skills, that's one thing I'd look at, just the culture of the place. Um, another thing, too, and not to be divisive in demographics, but how do they treat their females? As if, if you can go in there and they have a diversified portfolio of students, if they have kids, they have females, if they have a bunch of different different demographics and talent levels and whatever. How are they teaching across that bandwidth? We'll tell you what kind of culture that gym has. And as Stuart mentioned down there, we have phenomenal females. We have phenomenal uh, non-military persons, non-soft persons, stuff like that. So from our culture, I think we had a good one going. But when you go out in the civilian world, think of that too. And then also, I always say this, and maybe we'll get on it eventually in discussion here, is like, how does that fit your lifestyle all right am i learning just a if i'm a green beret or if i'm a ranger or whatever wherever you work you know if you're combat based person is it is it feeding a very sport there's nothing wrong with it it's feeding a very sport based modality or mentality that's fine but also i also want to have the ability to walk in there from a self-defense nature I'm, you know, hit some of my three tenets I always look at when I teach, you know, uh, survivability, lethality, and resiliency. I look at those three factors anytime I'm teaching or looking at the programmatics of something. You know, th does it feed two of those for me if I'm, a, if I'm an operator or if I'm a whatever I am going in there? Does that feed that, that animal that I'm trying to evolve or harness, whatever? And lethality, survive, survivability, and resilience. Would I bring my kid into this place? That's a great question to ask yourself. 
Yep. You know, if I'm going to walk in this gym, would I, would, would I let this person train my wife, my kids, my daughter? If you can answer yes in that, you're probably in the right spot. So, I don't know, if you got another add, add in that. I think you hit it, Jason, really. I mean, the only – the filters I would use, maybe one, I am you – know, my personal biases, I'm a big believer in jujitsu. It's a primarily, first and foremost, is a self-defense art. So, I, I think, like, having a, a self-defense curriculum is part of it. You know, is a priority. That's important to me. And then the second piece you already hit on to the equal, arguably the most important pillar is the culture. You know what I mean? Does the culture of that, that gym, that dojo, that academy align with your values and how do they treat other people? How do they represent themselves? All that type of stuff. You know what I mean? If it's not aligned with your own personal values, that's, that's always a great filter, right? Would I want my kids to train here? It's always a good one for leaders, right? Too. Would I want my kid to be led by this person? or to work in this organization or whatever it is, you know? If you use that as a, a kind of a rule of thumb, that's usually gonna tell you a yes or no. Yeah. I think one of the prevalent attitudes I've come across as I talk to people about jujitsu and different things, especially across the military, is this mindset that they've been trained in, certain individuals feel they've been trained in weapons, maybe they have a CCW or something. So the idea is I, I don't really need jujitsu because I, I have some other tool that I can use to get out of a bad situation. So why would I ever wanna you know, train in a martial art per se? How, how do you guys feel about that, especially in a soft community, especially as you go into a soft MOS? So you wanna start that one off or you Sure. Um, if that's their opinion, that's fine. They're entitled to it for sure. You know what I mean? I just, I just think it's short-sighted um, <clears throat> because I can say this through my own personal experience that, um, you know, hey, I hope I never have to use my martial arts, my jujitsu in a real-life situation. And you know what? To be honest, I personally have never had to. And I hope it stays that way. But absent of all that, it's given me so many more tools that have impacted my life in a positive way that therein lies the benefit, you know. Um, now, it also gives me the added benefit if I was to need those to employ this in a, in a somewhere on the streets, let's say, or downrange somewhere. And again, it's always in a defensive right it's a context usually right it's a it's a self-defense you know application it's not you know now downrange maybe it's in an offensive application but that's because if you're using your hands at that point yes yeah, something has really gone wrong right but the enemy always gets a vote but at least i know i'm prepared how to deal with that you can't always guarantee that you're going to have access to your long gun to your pistol to a blade or those things right and there's plenty of anecdotes of people have had to put hands on in combat situations. So to make the assumption that you're never gonna have to, you know, use your hands necessarily because I've got all these other weapons, so to speak, um, is a bad assumption. But just that aside, there's so much upside just to how it will benefit your life and ultimately make you a better human being, not just to mention the sense of self-confidence it gives you in a lot of other aspects, right, over time. Um, for all those reasons, I think there's it's it, that's why it's it's I would highly encourage you know uh, anyone to, to train and at least give it a shot. Yeah, you're kind of getting into the self defense aspect and people like being maybe dis disregarding it because they got a pistol or something like that. Man, there's so many what ifs I can imagine people throwing <laughs> throwing at this discussion. I, I try to unpack it and repack best I can. So I agree with guys like Jocko Willink for people who know who he is. Um, and you know it's it's kind of a common statement in martial arts the number one best self-defense technique there is is run run away right run yep. now, that, that might not sound very 
heroic, courageous, and valorous in the ears of some people. But if you think about the the, the meaning behind that, one, I, I want to make a home to my family. Okay. I'm not saying I'm going to be a coward to do that, but I'm just saying I want to make a home to my family. So I have to, so at some point in my, my mind, I have to quickly think, is this really worth what is about to happen if I engage? You know, there's two types of engagement, engagement and disengagement. And the good thing about jujitsu and uh, the structures it teaches both physically, mentally, and morally is, like, if I control the environment, I can, can start to control the systems within that environment. I can learn to disengage or engage on my terms, not all the time, but at least I have the training to do that, right? But man, I, I don't, I don't just run. Second to that, well, I would think like, been around and, you know, not the, the, the best of times overseas and stuff like that. If your number one go-to is to kill another human being, I question that. Not holistically there's reasons maybe to do that in a self-defense aspect but if you're basing your your number one go-to is to kill a human being that's a hard thing to think about in my opinion now, i'm not gonna go down the experience and past and anybody add, add any details to that i just don't think that's the best answer that the first thing for self-defense is i'm gonna shoot somebody because there's a lot of fringe things that go along with that that just are uncomfortable to talk about it's not worth killing a human being over certain things that would cause them that, that that's just another thing i like to think about too I, my, my first thing is not to kill somebody it's not 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 the business i want to be in it's not that it's not the message i want to teach my kids it's not the message i want to teach my students it's like you know somebody f's with me i'm going to shoot them all right yeah there's maybe some escalation of stuff we'll talk about on that one but that's just, I hear that a lot, you know. Thirdly, you me a soapbox, Drew, thanks. Uh, thirdly to that, right, how much have you trained in your self-defense modalities that you feel so comfortable and that's the way you're going to react? Because I'll tell you right now, the way you're going to react is going to be so primal that it's just, you're not going to, I mean, it's just, you all see me do the test on that, you know, you walk up, hit somebody and they flinch. There's your stance, man. That, that, that's your stance right there. You're not going to respond cognitively. You're going to respond primally. So if you think you're going to think through all these things and do this and that moment's notice, good luck, man. You're a better person than me, and I've been training this for 30 years, you know. So unless you are just a gunman at heart and you can do that 11-meter drill pull with somebody closing distance on you, which, you know, that's a canned scenario as it is, you might want to start thinking about what it takes to get that pistol, and I guarantee get that pistol or get whatever in action, there's a couple of things you have to think about. I, you're probably thinking about body mechanics and like having to engage with somebody at some point. Just being honest, right? So the whole self-defense thing, I don't know, man. We can talk about this ad nauseum. I just think, you know, just being able to protect yourself, your family, mm -hmm. and disengage on your terms mm -hmm. is an absolute just must in any of those situations. And I think, you know, we teach you, we are the weapon system. Pistols, rifles, bazookas, whatever, they're, they're tools of that weapon system. And if you treat it as such, you, you, you're, you're postured for a lot more than you can give yourself credit for. Yeah, it's, here's what, you know, we in the military in particular, we talk a, a lot about what? The R word, readiness. So the question is always, okay, ready for what? 
but I would argue, you know, having having at least being somewhat competent, you know what I mean, in, in some hand-to-hand self-defense is only going to enhance your overall readiness. That you makes know? me want to fight less people. Of course. And I was a knucklehead. I, I don't know anyone. <laughs> That's exactly the, the, the irony, but no surprise, right? Like in a lot of these things is like the, the more advanced you get in these, in the martial arts and you know uh the less how should we say prone to violence or whatever you become almost yeah, it's right like, it's like hanging with ryan hall yeah i mean it's ryan hall he helps us, he's a ufc fighter helps us out quite a bit and a couple of things we do great great special operations supporter yeah. ryan hall's one that uh, just overall great human being his wife they're an awesome team but i mean if you saw ryan no offense out there ryan if you ever hear this like he <laughs> I just other than his ears that are mangled, <laughs> he's just a skinny, just just a good nature, just bebopping along dude. That's one of the scariest human beings on the planet, and he looks like he he's a gamer all night long. Sometimes, you know, I'm like I'm like six foot three, two hundred thirty five pounds. If I saw him out and didn't know that, other than his ears being the key giveaway there, I'm like, man, I I got this guy. Little, little knowing that he's going to tie me into a pretzel in less than 10 seconds, you know? So, I mean, from that standpoint alone, like I said, the more I learn about this, the more I, I just don't want to fight anybody. Yeah. But even chances are, if you were to have some type of physical or try to initiate one with him, not even knowing who he was, let's say, chances are 99% of, he would he would avoid the confrontation. He would walk exactly. away. You know what I mean? He wouldn't. He would not try to engage you. You know what I mean? Unless he had absolutely no other alternative. That would be the last case resort. Okay, then... That would follow, but that's how it is with, with most people. So, I mean, from that standpoint, I just, you know, hopefully that answers a lot of this. Some of the self, I mean, it's, it's hard to answer all the scenarios on that. You know, and I, if I can just kind of segue into something else here, I kind of look like we, we, we're talking about like training at SWIC and soldiers and readiness. And that's what you, you kind of sparked the comment on me readiness. And we, we, we talk about the, the, the weapon system is the soldier and everything that he is given is a tool. He should calibrate himself to shoot any tool. It's like, you know, basic rifle marksmanship, right? You know, so calibrating a tool, calibrating a system. So if you like, I'm not, I'm not throwing out numbers here, but if you look at like the global force management, like how many combat zones are there in the world right now for the U.S.? And then, you know, we look at other programs like the TSCAPs, JSETs, CMTs, you know, whatever. And you look at proportionality of that. How many soldiers globally are, are are put forward on missions that are non-combat related that's a pretty metric uh percentage is that a fair fair statement i mean it's up there yeah i don't want to talk about numbers here but um so they're in places where they can't have guns they don't have reciprocity and concealed carry there may or may not be a sofa agreement status force so what are they supposed to use as their tools for their weapon system when stuff goes wrong all right now africa malaysia philippines wherever they're at they're not walking around full battle rattle like we did in syria and iraq and afghanistan and all that stuff so that's why i go back to brower if you don't have your radio and your weapons and, and your and your m4 what do you use for those two capabilities well you got your language and you got your hands so at that point, I just look at like that big of a percentage and we're sending people for in these, these types of missions, like, are we preparing them? 
Now I'm not the pro- I'm not the right ranking person to answer that, but I'm just saying I do have a, I do have an impact on this here and other places as we both of us do too. Uh, we at ten level we can start preparing guys know how to handle themselves when they're elsewhere in the world in Raleigh at home in Texas wherever they're at. But they they don't have a weapon they in their hands they are the weapon they can rely on themselves a little bit more now to defend themselves. And that's just that's that's my soapbox rant on preparing people for going forward on deployments. And that preparation, preparation, excuse me, goes so much deeper than just the the physical skills, as we're saying. Like that mentality of disengagement, that mentality of ego, all those things feed into the culture of of training. So yeah, and I, I look mindset. at mindset. Yeah, look at weapons. Think like pre-deployment, deployment, post-deployment. Now, from your red cycle stuff, what do you do for post-deployment? Chaplain, you're probably know the answer better than I do. It's been since, it's a long side here to that. You come back, you get family integration, you know, you do all this stuff. You know the person, you probably say it better than I can. There's a lot of reintegration stuff. There's, there's some post-traumatic stuff in there, too. You know, there's, there's some things, some checks and balances they do when they pull these guys back from overseas. You know, we're going to talk to these guys, give them whatever. You know how it goes, right? So if you think about weapons and stuff like that, if I gave you an M4... M9, whatever, Glock, and... Uh, Couldn't carry because I'm a chaplain, but... Well, you know, I'd say, uh, you, you can... You, you can if you, the three Notionally. Band, Notionally. The pre-deployment, deployment, post-deployment. That pistol, whatever, it's going to serve you well in preparation and training. When you're in combat, it's going to serve you well when needed. Can, that, can that, that tool, that weapon, serve you when you get back? Not in a good way most times. Okay? Right. Now, going down the dark lane here. But when I look at like jujitsu, that's a, that's a that's a weapon system that prepares you before, during, if you need to. It's still there for you. It's the only weapon I can think of that we give somebody that serves them well after post deployment. A Stu hit it on best too. Just understanding how to deal and work through with life situations with life. Nice. So instead of like suck starting that pistol and drinking and all this stuff. That's so why I say a lot of guys lose that throttle control on these big deployments and op, 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 going for it, just moving, 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 moving. They've got that throttle wide open, whatever dopamine discussion we want to have on that, they're just operationally minded on the X, right? They come back, that throttle's not there anymore, okay? They're still wide open coming back sometimes. I'm saying it's everybody, but just they come back and some people resort to drinking, Addictions, look at that dopamine rush. Some guys go down that dark hole and they start hurting themselves or think about hurting themselves or hurting others, right? Well, then you also, well, you have your wife or your girlfriend, your family come back to you. They've dealt with, they've, they've dealt with a lot of stuff while you were gone too. So you're not even coming back. You're not in the same book. You're on the same chapter. So there's, there's some trauma there, right? Absolutely. But what that does, man, it gives you that throttle. Why? Because it worked for me. It's worked for a lot of buddies I've had and some people, uh, uh, Stu and... We're working with stuff like that too. It gives them another throttle to hold on to, that they can get control again and get on that mat, and we can get them back in control of their throttle, where they're kind of feeling that rush again. They're feeling that physicality. They're feeling that emotional stress and how to deal with it. You're stuck, well, <laughs> being stuck under us. Like it gives them that ability to get a hold of things again and get them somewhat in the right pathway back to a, a balance so there's a lot of talk in has been for a 
a while now, right? And special operations used to talk, you know, about what human performance and wellness, you know, HPW. <clears throat> and when we look at wellness, you know, I'd say, you know, a lot of people, or the health and wellness, you know, a lot of people want to think, hey, my PT score or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm healthy. I'm well. I can max out the ACFT, right? No, you know, wellness, health and wellness is holistic, right? There are, there, yes, there's a physical component, but there is a mental component. There is a spiritual component. There is a social component. There are environmental components, right? It's to all of that, to being healthy and well. And so as, as a, and again, I'm very biased here, obviously, this is what we're talking about, but as a, as a one-stop shop that really checks the block on almost all of these different dimensions of wellness, you know, you have jujitsu because it literally touches on almost all of those, right? There is certainly a physical component to it. There is a mental component to it that you have to deal with. There is a social component, right? It's a group. There's an environment. There's even a spiritual component, believe it or not, you know, that's, it's all of those things. And that's why I really recommend it and, and commend it to anybody who's looking, you know, if that's a priority in their life, or maybe they're struggling with certain things, I always offer them, hey, Maybe get into jujitsu, maybe come train with us or whatever. You know what I mean? You may find that this is going to fill a lot of the holes or the things that you're kind of maybe struggling with or some of the gaps in your life that you need to help fill or whatever. Like, this is a great vehicle for it. I think that's one of the dangers sometimes. FM 722, holistic health and fitness. We, we compartmentalize so many different aspects of our, our wellness. And the Hebrew word shalom, it means nothing missing, nothing broken, that everything is together in one piece. Oh, See, I thought I meant peace, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's what peace is. It's mm. when everything... Language training. Brilliant. Stuff thrown out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's when everything is together and nothing is missing, nothing is broken. So um, I would love to hear a little bit, you know, now that you're retired, I know you're working with an organization, and how is jiu-jitsu helping folks as they come out of special operations? Because a lot of our cadre are, are in the twilights, they're coming out, and so how might this help some of our folks uh, across special operations? Across sure, I'll, I'll speak to that very briefly. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, you know, I retired back here in, in officially in January, 1st of January. I work for a small nonprofit organization called the Donovan and Bank Foundation. It's uh, named after um, <clears throat> Bill Donovan, right, the founder of the Office of Strategic Services, you know, which was the pre-forerunner, forefather to the special, you know, Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and modern-day special forces. So you got Bill Donovan, and then you got Aaron Bank, right, the first, you know, commander of the 10th Special Forces Group, you know, established in 1952. So you got Donovan and Bank Foundation. Now, this was stood up by my good friend, who you guys know as well, Paul Tulin, right, recently uh, retired about a year before I did, lieutenant colonel, did time in third group, USASOC, and SWIC as well. Um, and then Drew Stamp is the third, so there's three of us. And <clears throat> our main mission is to rerun these transition uh, workshops for, and the purpose really is to enable and to assist special operators who are getting out of the military, right, to bring closure to their warrior story and then to transition to a life of peace, contentment, and balance, right? So that's the goal. Now, a lot of guys we find when they're getting out, what are they worried about? They're worried about getting a job a lot of times. Oh my gosh, I gotta get a job. And what we've learned and what we know is this, you don't need to worry about the job. You're gonna get a job. I don't think we found anyone or came across anyone yet who didn't get a job or even have a problem getting a job, right? Like, trust me, with your background, with your skill set, with your knowledge, with your expertise, experience, all that stuff, almost none of our people have a hard time getting a job at all. Here's what they struggle with. Three things generally, purpose, identity and community that's what they miss when they're no longer in the army 
in the special operations community anymore, right? That's oftentimes, those are the holes that need to be filled. So we try to help them find that on the outside. One of the vehicles that we're using, that we use, is actually jujitsu because we're passionate about it and we know firsthand all of the benefits about it. And, and we can't be all things to all people and espouse these things, but we want to like offer services and things that we can stand by and vouch for because we've personally benefited for them and we know the goodness over time. So one thing we do offer the people that go through our transition workshop is we've partnered with um, the We Defy Foundation that, uh, you know, Jason I's black belt, Brian Marvin, um, is a is a on their board, a member of, and, and they're an organization that uh, originally was founded, I believe, you know, to get to get after the veteran suicide problem. And so they have they have a, an, an, an arrangement with uh, highly credible jujitsu academies throughout the country. And so for service members who are getting out, they can apply like for a scholarship uh, through the We Defy Foundation. Um, and then they'll link them up with the closest affiliated academy to them. And I think they get like two free geese and a free year's worth of training, right, through the We Defy Foundation. So what we're doing is through the Donovan and Bank Foundation, because our idea is this, is like if someone else out there already does it, we're, we're not going to try to replicate, you know, what someone else already does probably better than us. But we do want to preach the gospel of jujitsu and try to use jujitsu again as a vehicle for our transitioning service members and soft people, right, to help make their lives better. And so we partnered with the We Defy Foundation. So here's a good example. Just a, two weeks ago, we had a guy who went through our program, and now he's starting a um, his master's program up at Columbia University, New York City. And I just happened to ask him, anyway, hey, by the way, would you be interested in getting involved in jiu-jitsu or starting jiu-jitsu. And he's like, you know what? That sounds really good. And I'm like, great, because we got a great offer for you. I, I can get you linked up with the We Defy Foundation. Oh, guess what? There's this guy named Henzo Gracie. You may have heard of him. His <laughs> academy, it's like one of the Mecca academies. of all. It's right there in New York City, right? So I reach out to Brian Marvin, and literally within three hours, they had this guy connected with Henzo's academy with a POC there, and he's able to go start training there like almost the next day. Now... I'll add one additional layer that we've thrown in. We've also established a relationship with another really amazing black belt named Henry Akins. And so Henry Akins, if you look him up, uh, again, a third degree black belt under Hickson Gracie. So you can just Google those names if you're not familiar. You know, some, you know, some people consider Hicks and many the, you know, the greatest of all time. So Henry, again, amazing human and amazing jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, and he has some really, really good <clears throat> online curriculums that are, that are awesome supplements, to obviously, to live training. But what he's offered us at no cost is he has a – it's probably close to 60 or 70 videos. But it is what he calls his white to blue belt curriculum. And it's it's essentially – I think it's literally it's, – it's what Hicks and Gracie's white to blue belt curriculum was. And he, he, it's it's all videoed. He shows lots of, of – exceptional details that you won't see in a lot of other places and honestly i think he sells that thing online and he sells lots of it. it's about it's like a thousand dollar online curriculum well he's given that to us for free so anyone who kind of comes to us and we refer to through the we defy foundation to train at a uh, for transitioning soft service members at a, at a jiu-jitsu academy they also as a package deal they'll get henry aiken's white to blue curriculum as an online video supplement that they can use to train as well. So that's how we're kind of trying to, you know, again, within Donovan and Bank Foundation, one of our vehicles we've put out there as a program uh, to try to encourage people to get involved in jujitsu. And it's really from that holistic health and wellness standpoint, right? And if it's another vehicle for finding some purpose, some identity, some community, and also 
um, filling some of those wellness gaps that may exist in guys as they in gals as they transition as well. And the great stuff about everything you just said is like this is all like grassroots. Grassroots. Right? Yeah. It's 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 soft guys taking care of soft guys. Yeah. Bottom line. Uh, Brian, I've known he's yep. he's like my brother. I've been under him for a long time. We've switched organizations together. Like I just he's he's part of my family. Um, I know I've had issues in the past. He was right there, helping out. Um, he's like my uncle to my kids, for lack of a better term, right? So like I said, soft guys taking care of soft guys, and that's that's what we do. And uh, you know, we defy thing. You know, back in Fort Campbell, Donnie Bowen, guy I mentioned yet, yeah, Jim, I trained at, great human being, former A one five guy. We we were putting on a uh, we defy Jim as well too. We were putting on a uh, seminar there, and uh, we had it was large. And this one kid, we just kind of know something was wrong. We, soldier, Fort Campbell, and uh, he just started kind of broke down. And you know, Donnie, I pulled him aside, stuff like that, and we start talking this and that, and it's like. What, what's going on, man? You, know, you should be happy. This is like a great seminar. He's like, I just, just, I just decided to come today. Um, he he told the whole story. Like Don and I were like tearing up, man. He's like, I was going to kill myself this weekend, and uh, buddy of mine trains here, and he said, just come with me, just come with me. He goes, he, his buddy didn't know it was going to happen, but uh, he, he's like, man, I, I was. This is the weekend. I just decided. He told us all his problems. We're like, God. Us, man, yeah. this kid, man. Yep. You and know. Donnie's like, I got you, brother. And like, we took control of him. Um, immediately called Brian. We defy foundation type stuff. Uh, guy, kid got pulled in. And I remember, like, I mean, I PCS not too long after that, unfortunately. That guy was going strong, you know, training at Donnie's gym. Don't know what happened to the kid. Don't even know his name off the top of my head. I wouldn't mention it anyways. But man, it just, it just the, the swooping effect of people coming in and snatching that kid up at the right place, right time. What would have happened if that had not happened that morning? Yep. I don't know. Can't predict the future. But the fact that, like, it takes a phone call. I know for a fact I can call this guy. It's going to happen just like that. I know I can call Paul Tulin, and they will leverage everything they have against that. I know I can call Brian Marvin, we defy. It's just soft guys taking care of soft guys. And when it comes down to it, it's this community we have built over decades uh, in, in the martial art, Brazilian jiu-jitsu community, that enables that. And it's it's... Never thought I'd be where I'm at after <laughs> this long. Um, you know, hanging out with the Gracies and Black Belt and all this stuff. But again, you know, monumental to that and overshadowing that. I don't even think about that. I just never thought I'd be in the place where I'm at now. And in both the military, I could leverage that. And everybody's just so willing to help us. You know, like everybody's willing to help us out. And it's just this community does that. Yep. So where do you see the future of training jiu-jitsu across SWIC and soft headed? It's a big question. Um, I think trend lines. I think uh, between myself and Stu kind of named and identified some of the trend lines as we've seen them grow. I think um, since like the beginning of UFC and MMA and all this stuff, like both Brazilian jiu-jitsu and this stuff has really ignited. And it's like a common, like everybody knows what UFC is, right? Uh, jiu-jitsu is even get, is getting that way now. Uh, you know, looking more at the Olympics, stuff like that. You know, it's a whole different discussion. But I think it's more recognizable, and people are starting to see the value of it. I mean, my gosh, we were just talking today about Elon Musk and uh, what's his name? 
yeah. <laughs> the super fight Mark between Zuckerberg. The, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, the super fight between the millionaires. Can't make it up. There's oh. no better way. There's no better indicator that the, the, the industry's healthy when you have the two most richest people in the world. It's like, yeah, we're going to do that. Well, that's egos too, though, right? Yeah. One guy calls one guy out on social media, and the next guy's saying, oh, I'll fight you in a cage fight. But if you talk about me- measures of success or performance yeah. and effectiveness, I think that's up there saying it's out there, right? Hey, I'll fight both those guys at the same time for $100 for million. A fraction of what they made, yeah. So, I mean, from a, from a social standpoint, it's out there. The cat's out of the bag. This is great stuff. Um, from maybe from a soft and military perspective, you know, MACP program, everything Larson, those guys created geniuses back then. Definitely had legs and is running. Sock P program, it's integrated in 350-1. Guys are just doing this on their own. You know, 10-level training. It's almost like it's I'm a warrior. It's a responsibility. You're seeing a lot of people do it on their own. So that's a great trend line to follow. Um, ever since I've been here, I'm always worried about this. I came from fifth group, great culture. You, know, you had uh, Browers, General Brennan, General Locke, Powers. I mean, that was just a – it was crazy. <laughs> Every group commander could beat, beat you up. It was awesome, you know. And, um, must break you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was a great culture from that standpoint. And it was a very healthy culture, not, not beating people up. But, you know, moving that way, I come to brag. I'm like, oh, my gosh, man, I just left fifth group. Well, you know, so many black belts in the, in the commander, stuff like that. What's it going to be like? Well, then I have this guy uh, was a train group commander, chief staff. Like, you tell me I enabled a lot. You enabled a lot bringing me in here. You, know, you came at the right time in my life where I came in here and started teaching. And I was like, holy cow, man, like, this is a great culture to be in here, too. Swick's a good place to be. And then, lo and behold, uh, back when General Roberson was here, man, that guy's a beast on the mats. He, he, that guy can throw down, and he, he was very supportive of it. And so I was like, wow, wow, it's it's more than just Fort Campbell. Yeah, and then you start seeing other groups come in. You start seeing this culture, you know, 10th group, you know, Mike Grant and those guys out there. Seventh, just, it's just, it's it's there, right? And so now we got, you know, uh, General Bepair and Mike Sullivan, you know, it's Chief uh, Colonel Sullivan, excuse me, uh, Chief of Staff, supportive again. You know, it's like there's this, there, the support is there. It's just building the infrastructure in there to keep this going and keep it from name tape deflating, going into like institutional and building and all the other things that go along with that. So I think from moving along itself, I think we're on a good trend line. Um, I think the skill set's there. Um, people are more willing to share it safely and integrate it in the training where needed. And I think the, the people that need to be where they need to be are there and influencing. I think the influence is, is the key term there. And I mean, right now, Drew, just you, the grappling chaplain. Yeah, we talk about health and, and, and emotional health and stuff like that. To have a chaplain, not only on the mats, to affect this from just your you, – you have hands-on people in ways that I can't have hands-on people, and it's a spiritual, emotional, and healthy way in that, that aspect. So, I mean, our chaplains are now grappling. So, I mean, to, to me, like, you know, that measures of effectiveness and success, we're getting to the point now where the trend line's there. I just think it's like, keep on that glide path and keep building it. I think it's going to keep moving that way. Sir? Yeah, so real quick, um, one, I would I would love, I think a lot of people would actually, it, it would be great to get combatives training, I think, back into the pipelines. You know, the pipelines... I like to call them, it's a system of compromises. In other words, you know, they've been rearranged. If you've been in SWIC for more than a day, they've been rearranged in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And this course is first and they, it gets moved around for, for all very logical reasons, right? It just depends on what's the priority at the time, right? So it's, it's, there is no perfect uh, place to conduct a, a lot of training. And, th- and then you talk about trying to put one more thing into the pipeline and add the length. I get it. I think the logical place for what it's worth, if they were to consider it, would be to, 
during language school. You know, the guys, guys and gals have have more time for that, right? They're they're if you're worried about an injury, let's say, which I think the risks of that are low, but they're already badged, so to speak, right? They've been through their pipeline, they're qualified, now they're going through language school. So should they, you know, low low risk, but get hurt or something that they have time to recover? But I also think that that'd be the the right time to kind of bake it in, maybe once or you know two to three times a week or something like that, right? In the mornings, they you could probably find time to do it. That'd be a great a great place to have it. Um, back into the qualification courses. In the meantime, though, you know, I'll just put it out there to anybody that's listening that's on Fort Bragg. If if you are looking for a place, to, if whether you train or you don't, and you're or you're interested, whatever it is, um, you are welcome to join us. You know, basically we're there every Monday to Friday, um, starting around zero six thirty ish until about zero eight ish. Um, you can find us in the basement of Bank Hall. And again, we've got, you know, regardless of your experience, what color, black belt to white belts, male, female, kids, everybody's, everybody's welcome. And we've got, a, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible demographic of really great people. And uh, anyone who's out there and wants to come train is, is more than welcome. Yeah, and if I'll add to that, I, Monday to Friday, 630, we're there. Until this gets codified better, we're going to keep doing it. That's That's the underground type of way of doing yeah, stuff, right? It's, it's yeah, very SF-like, though, right? Jiu-Jitsu it's, gorillas, it's, it's, right? It's, 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 yeah. The best part is it's a very much an organic underground yeah. uh, movement, right? That, that kind of that kind of uh, feeds itself and whatnot. So there's, a, there's yeah. a certain beauty in that that we really I don't care fortunate. what guidons they fly. I don't care what schools they go to. Just come on in. I'm not here to compete again. We're not a school. We're an organization that supports the greatest military special operations in the world. If you train at some of the other schools around here in this area, fine. Come in. Help us. Help us build. If we got something that you can take away, take back to your school, make it better, take it. I don't care. There's no proprietorship here. I'm giving back. We're giving back. Like the group here is solidifying. We're all trying to make everybody better. Yeah. And so if you come from another school, come on down. You're visiting Fort Bragg. Come on down if you're listening. I, I, you know, if you want to meet some cool people, hang out. If you want to talk about going to selection, come on down. We'll talk about that. Yep. We're not just jiu-jitsu either. We've got a lot of other people with a diverse martial arts background, pistol guys, knife guys, we got kickboxing guys, and they will all pull you aside and show you, not just rack up you know, kill points on you beating you up. Um, if you've got a problem, if you're thinking bad stuff, man. It's a chaplain. We've got a chaplain, we got <laughs> yep. a grappling chaplain right here. Yep. We got, we got institutions, both military and non-military, veterans, that we will leverage against you. Yeah, 100%. We will bring you on those mats. You can beat me up for free if that makes you feel better. I don't care. I don't care what your excuse is. Like I have the, the most respected person in jiu-jitsu or martial arts in the world to me is that person that walks in on that mat, stares one of us in the face, and goes, you know what? You beat the crap out of me. I'll be back tomorrow because I'm going to figure it out how to do it. And I'm gonna do it back to you eventually. I don't care how long it takes. I have no that 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 that's the most respected person I can imagine on the mat. That person just keeps coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And you know what? It may take a year. It may take five years to get better. Eventually, that that person didn't quit. Eventually, he keeps coming. Does come back. Probably has a black belt by then, and has a whole different life because something changed about him somewhere in there. And that's the that's the magic of all of this. You know, you you get to. Where else can you go? We're training a culture of warriors and green berets and psyopers and civil affairs people, and we get to do this. I just think I think it's I think it's awesome time to be to be involved in this. Yeah, so, that's my statement. 
come on in. Everybody's welcome. Absolutely. Well, it was truly an honor and privilege to sit down today and get to have this discussion. And so, yeah, I hope the uh, everyone listening heard the call go out to come start your journey uh, and experience all the benefits, the holistic benefits, the direct benefits, um, self-defense. All these things are all wrapped up into one um, and into an awesome community. So uh, I hope, I hope uh, everyone listening uh, can, can begin that journey. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a great experience. Yep. I think I'll come my friends talk about jujitsu and work, man. It's getting better than that. And I'll see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow, six thirty. Thank you. All.